Come, Lord Jesus, come now and come back soon, we pray. Amen. As I was preparing uh, this for this Sunday, I came across an article by a woman called Joni McFadden. Uh, she is a Guardian uh, journalist. She's based out of Glasgow. Some of you may have heard of her. And the title of the article was called Sunday Blues, Growing Up in an Ultra-Strict Church. And it recounted her experience of being raised in the Highlands in a free Presbyterian church. Pretty much everything was banned on Sunday. You could go to church, you could read the Bible, and you could eat. And that was it. The dishes couldn't even be washed, so someone had to volunteer to wake up at half six on Monday morning and do them. That doesn't sound great. And as a result, she grew up dreading Sundays. They were misery to her. And now many years later, freed from what she describes as the shackles of the church, she says, I adore Sundays. I'm ridiculously happy of being free to do whatever I want. In many ways, this kind of illustrates a, a, a quote from Luther that humanity is like a drunk man. Falls off one side of the horse, climbs back up, and immediately falls off the other side. It's remarkable what we have managed to do throughout history with this fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep, keep the holy, as the Lord God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. From the Gospels, we're probably quite familiar with how the Pharisees approach this. It's quite intimidating. God had given one commandment and uh, concerning the Sabbath, and they added 1,521 regulations. Does that sound familiar? Setting out with what they did and couldn't do, 1,521. That makes risk assessments of the And in more recent history, including here in Scotland, strict form of Sabbath observance has led many to see Sunday as a day of misery, rather than a day of joy. But what about the church today? Well, as I prepare for this Sunday, it has helped me, re- it's helped me and reinforce what God said and what he meant by it and why it was good. And I wonder how many of us, when it comes to the Sabbath commandment, we think maybe it doesn't even have that much relevance to us anymore. I wonder how many of us would be hard-pressed for now, except excluding a couple of hours on Sunday morning, our Sundays are really any different to Saturdays. How many Christians have come to think of Sunday as fundamentally, at its deepest level, a day for family, rather than a day for God, which, when used by its design, can bring great blessing to family? And given that we're commanded to keep this day holy, I wonder how much thought we've given to what that means. The truth is, many Christians today live their lives seeking to obey nine commandments. They just can't see the relevance to them in the fourth commandment. In other words, we've come off the other side of the horse. 
part of the challenge is that the Fourth Amendment is undoubtedly one of the hardest to interpret and apply in the Christian context. For some contextual help, in the Old Testament, there is a three-fold division when it comes to the law of God, as we find it in the Old Testament. We have the civil law, the kind of the law of ancient Israel, which is fulfilled in Christ, and it doesn't apply to us anymore. We have the ceremonial law, which is also fulfilled in Christ, who is our prophet, he is our priest and our king, he is our temple and our sacrifice. So we no longer follow the sacrificial system. And then we have the moral law, which does apply to us as much as it ever did. The tricky thing with the Sabbath is that the Sabbath was so ingrained in the life of God's people that as you read through the whole of the Old Testament, you'll find parts of it in the civil law, parts of it in the ceremonial law, and parts of it referred to in the moral law as well. So that means we have to do a bit of work to figure out which parts of these commands just continue over into the new covenant as part of the moral law of God, and which ones fall away as part of the civil and ceremonial law. There's a bit of work to be done in doing all that. Some things have changed, some things haven't. However, what I find most striking about the whole thing is that when God set down the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments which were basic to human life, the moral law, which would stand for all time, one of them sitting alongside prohibitions on adultery and murder and theft, one of them, one of them was that one day get hold to him. It's part of God's, it's part of the internal unchanging law of God. And if, and to reinforce that, this commandment is grounded in the pattern of creation, and we heard that when Avon read from Exodus, that God created the world in six days and rest from seven. Our Sabbath observance reflects God's. And so the fourth of the commandment, like all the rest of the moral commandments, is binding on all people everywhere. It's part of the pattern of life. It's part of it binding on people for every in, in every nation. So in some sense the Sabbath commandment remains is binding on a Christian. If we view the Sabbath or the Lord's Day as a burden, which God imposed on us, then we have fundamentally misunderstood We have certainly misunderstood the fourth commandment. Yes, this is a command of God, but it is also a gift from God. And it is a precious one. At their best, God's people Israel found in this commandment the blessing that was always its intention, recognizing its beauty and grace, taking a delight in it. And you find that in the Psalms and elsewhere. It was a time of disentanglement and from distraction and focused delight on the God who had done so much for them. It was a time of refreshment, bodily and mentally and spiritually. It was a time of rest. Importantly, it was understood that it was a time of rest which pointed towards the promise of God, the promise of eternal rest, which he would one day give to his people. So precious was the Sabbath to God, people when they were thinking rightly that one rabbi, when he asked what the world would come, what the world to come would be like, he replied that it would be like the Sabbath. That's how wonderful, that's how delightful the Sabbath should be to God's people. And part of Christian a Christian's maturity is to recognize the beauty of the Lord's Day. So this is a complex topic, but we're going to take a quite a simple approach to it. We're calling we're called to observe one different day. That's what we're called to do. We're called to observe one different day. So different in what way? Well, different in three ways. What is supremely clear is that God gave this Sabbath day, firstly, as a day for resting, 
and that's the starting point. It's a day for resting. The command is remember the day and keep it holy, which is expanded upon in Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 13. So if you have your Bibles there, keep a finger on that. So Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work. You have work, not work. That's the significance of the Sabbath, repeatedly and emphatically. The command is to do no work. The very word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word progress, or just stopping. So it seems clear that the fourth commandment continues to mean that we should stop on and work for one day. Seven. But if we keep reading on, in Deuteronomy 5 verse 14, it expands on it more. We see that this is for the entire household too. On it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. It goes right the way down into the livestock. We must have consideration for others and not require others to work. When we are resting, don't make your servants work. Those who work for you, those who are under your command, don't make them work when they should be resting. Now, I don't imagine many of us have servants, but some of us might have cleaners, or when I was growing up, children, um, and the point remains the same. It's not just for us as individuals, but for the whole household. Looking to Exodus 20.11, it says, For the sixth, during six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The rhythms of work followed by rest are originated in God himself. And those kinds of rhythms are reflected in the world around us. It's how the planets move around one another in seasons and in tides and the things which set the rhythm of our time. That the world that God made for us and that he created us to slot right in. We've been designed to exist in these rhythms. We need rest. It's part of how we've made up, how we're made up. And we get to slot into that rhythm, working six days and resting on the seventh. We need to rest. If we don't end up if we don't, we end up overworked and lacking in rest, opening the door to being overwhelmed, to stress, to relationship breakdowns, to illness, both physical and mental, and often strong feelings of dissatisfaction. You can't ignore the rhythms of life because they're built into who you are. They're in your DNA. You've got to stop. And if you don't stop sooner or later, either your body or your mind will make you stop. And it's good for us to stop. Especially in this crazy, frantic culture of ours, we need to stop physically because we break down. If we don't, we need to stop mentally and emotionally. We need breaks to process our thinking, how we're made. We need to stop to get perspective on our lives, just to take, take a step back from everything. To have space, to take time to think, to reflect, to deliberate about how we live. Rather than just racing from one day into the next, into the next. We need to stop to be reminded of our limitations. And this is one of the great uses of the Sabbath. And how many of us, if we're honest, rush around from thing to thing, wishing that we had 30 hours in a day and 8 days in a week. And then, even then, pretending we're thinking that even then we'd have enough time, we really need to fill it up so fast. 
part of the Sabbath is to remind us that we're limited, that we can't do everything and that we shouldn't try. It's good to know our limit limitations before God. We need to stop to be reminded of who owns all our days. We need to stop to say, the Lord owns me, the Lord owns my time, and Sabbath rest is a deliberate dethroning of work, of all that makes us busy. I do not belong to it. We need to stop to be reminded that God can be trusted to provide. The fourth commandment isn't an arbitrary rule. It's something that just dovetails perfectly with who we are. The command to rest is not restricted but gracious. Yet we have managed to make Sabbath a burden. Imagine you're at work, it's Wednesday, hump day, halfway through, and your boss comes up to you out of the blue and says, you know what, you've been working hard, take a day off, go home, put your feet up. That'd be great. Dom, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> but this isn't so different from what God is saying here. He says to keep one day holy to him. And yet it seems ridiculous that it's such a burden that we want to be able to treat Sunday as frantically and as frenetically as every other day of the week. So what is wrong with us? We need to recognize the goodness of God in the command and see how wonderful it is. Stopping and resting should be part of God in this. What grace. Let me say this uh, by a way of personal testimony, and I hope for everyone that this is something particularly good to learn early in life. There is enormous relief in embracing the command to take one day of rest. I can remember it through my days in school and then through my uh, four years at university and also my gap year. I can remember through all of them the sense of great relief that there was one day of just stopping. One guilt-free day when you don't work. It's amazing. No matter how busy you are, it doesn't matter. How many essays you've got, it doesn't matter how many exams you've got on Monday morning. It's amazing that when you decide at the beginning and you just say, I'm going to take the Sunday as a separate day, I'm not going to slave away on Sunday, it's amazing how this work manages to fit in the other six days. It seems to slot in perfectly. It's an extraordinary thing, and it's sheer liberation. It's a wonderful blessing. The Sabbath is designed as a day of rest and for rest. But we shouldn't consider the Sabbath only in terms of what we're commanded not to do. That's going down the route of the Pharisees. But there are two great dangers in how we approach the Sabbath in response. Legalism and license. And usually we're naturally wired to fall into one of two camps. It's tricky to find the right course when it comes to how we approach the Sabbath. For those of us with a slightly legalistic bent, if we think of the Sabbath in terms of what we shouldn't do, then we, can we might develop a hard and negative attitude to that day. We can end up maybe with a judgmental attitude towards others who differ from us in any way in their health or what their understanding is of the Sabbath and how that day should be used. And if you go in the other direction and bend more towards license and we just assume that if we're not in the office, we're fine. As long as I'm not in the office, I can do just whatever I want. My day. And we're with John McFadden. I'm deliriously happy because this is my day. I can do whatever I want. And that's why it's particularly helpful to remember here a principle that can help interpret all the commandments. That the negative includes the positive. Do not murder includes have respect for life. Do not commit adultery includes to be faithful. And do not work on the Sabbath includes use the Sabbath rightly. Use it for the purposes that God gave it for. And that of course is where Jesus, and that of course is where Jesus clashed with the Pharisees, isn't it? 
one of the most persistent accusations that they leveled against Jesus was that he was a Sabbath breaker. And the response of Jesus was to insist that they simply did not understand. They had missed the heart of God altogether. They had failed to see that the Sabbath, as well as being a day of rest, was a day of blessing. Jesus infuriated the religious authorities by things he did on the Sabbath. But in reality, the reality is that he never broke the fourth commandment. Of course he didn't. He loved the Lord, and he loved the Lord of the Lord, and he kept it perfectly. What he did was break some of those 1,521 extra regulations, which, which the Pharisees had smothered the fourth commandment with in reality. So in reality, it's good to look to Jesus as our example of perfect Sabbath keeping. We know, for example, that he went to the but he also used the Sabbath to bring blessing, to bring hope and help and healing to others. He didn't get synagogue out of he didn't get synagogue out of the way and then put his feet up for the rest of the day with something on the Netflix. He viewed the Sabbath not as a day when you're not allowed to do things, but as a day particularly suited to God's weighty purposes of justice and mercy and faithfulness. If, uh, if you've uh, recently got to Mark's Gospel, you might remember in Mark 3, Jesus goes into the synagogue and there's a man with him. Um, with what we don't exactly know what it is, but it says he has a withered hand. And Jesus is there. He sees this man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are watching him like a hawk because it's the Sabbath. And he turns to them, and you might remember what he says. He has a question for them. He knows exactly what they're thinking, and turns to them, and he says, Is it, is it awful on the Sabbath? And it's, going to be, it's a very good question because he knows exactly what the Pharisees we're about to ask, is it, is it lawful on the Sabbath, Jesus says, to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to heal or to harm? And it says he looked at them with anger. Here are, here are people saying, I'm sorry, but this day is dedicated to the God of all health and mercy and grace. But today we can't show you health, mercy and grace. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, God's people have historically recognized, for example, that although we should seek not to work on the Lord's day, there are exceptions to that where work is genuinely necessary for the urgent benefit and blessing of others. It would not be a good thing if all nurses across the whole country or all doctors were to suddenly say, I refuse to work on the Sabbath, or for those leading churches for that matter. But more broadly, the implication of Jesus' approach is that true Sabbath observance isn't really about not doing certain things. In fact, Jesus' approach implies that you can break the Sabbath by doing nothing, by failing to help those who need your help. <clears throat> this day is a day of rest from work, but it's not a day of inactivity. And that's the problem with the kind of Joan McFadden approach. Let's just sit there looking at the wall all day long. No, it's not a day of inactivity. It's not a day of selfishness. It's an opportunity to do good. Sunday is a day of worship and rest, yes, but we're also challenged to see it as a day of mercy. For mercy and for compassion, a day to help those who are in need. These are such apt and suitable things to be engaged with on the Lord's Day. When we use the Lord's Day to serve one another and others to help the needy, feed the hungry, support the struggling, visit the sick, we come closer to using it in the way that Jesus did as the day for blessing. 
And then finally, but equally important, I want to suggest that the Lord's Day can be one different day when we recognise it is also a day for rejoicing. It's just the irony, you know, the day of misery, the day of boredom. This is the day of rejoicing. The Lord's Day should be a celebration. Let me ask you this, why did God rest on the seventh day? Why did he rest? Was he tired? Did he need to recharge his bathroom? No. He rested to delight in his accomplishment. He rested to glory in his own glory, to look at what he had done and take pleasure in it. And that is the purpose of the Lord's Day for us too. To look at what God has done and to glory in it and to take pleasure in it. To see and rejoice in the goodness of God. Now yes, we know the whole of life is worship. All our days belong to God. All our activities are to be offered up to him. Nonetheless, God sets aside one different day that we might focus our attention directly on him. And I don't know about you, but I need that. Actually, I do know about you, we all need that. You cannot give to God the adoration that he deserves, squeezed in between other things in life. You cannot give to the gospel the contemplation it deserves, squeezed in between the rest of life. We need time to stop and to dedicate to it. We're we're prone to forget who God is, what God has done. And we forget in five minutes flat and every every nine a a week and walk out the doors and somehow it evaporates. We need the rhythm. We need the rhythms of daily prayer and Bible study. But we certainly need the rhythms of weekly gathered worship. Leviticus 23 describes Sabbath as a day of sacred assembly, a time when God's people gathered before him. So let me suggest three ways in which the Sabbath pattern is significant for our worship and which makes us a day for rejoicing. The first one we've already seen. The Sabbath looks back to creation. Exodus 20 tells us to observe the Sabbath because God created it in six days. Rested on sin. So the Sabbath means that built into our life there is a reminder that God is our creator and he is the creator of all things. And he deserves our adoration on, on our worship Sabbath and our worship on Sabbath to look, on the Sabbath to look back to creation. Secondly, the Sabbath looks back to redemption. And we see that in Deuteronomy 5, the passage that Aaron read for us. In Exodus 20, God says, Observe the Sabbath because I worked for six days and rested for one. In Deuteronomy 5, he says, Observe the Sabbath because you were slaves in Egypt, and I redeemed you from Egypt with a mighty hand and brought you into the land of your rest. You had no rest, only had a fallen slavery, and I gave you rest. So the Sabbath is a reminder of God's redeeming, of God in redeeming his people, which is why we're here today, and not yesterday. Why do Christians observe the Lord's Day rather than the Jewish Sabbath? Well, this is the day in which we commemorate our redemption, because it's the day of resurrection. Every Sunday is Easter Day. It's a mini Easter Day. So get your chocolate heads out. It's a day of celebration. It's a reminder of the triumph of Christ delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. And from the beginning, the Christian church did two things. It maintained the principle of stopping for one day out of every seven, but it shifted that day to the day choosing to celebrate the Lord's Day. And it's often pointed out there's a particular aptness to that. I don't know if the other Christians had this in mind or not, I have no idea, but it builds into the structure of our week, the very pattern of the gospel itself. 
the Jewish people from the time when they were chosen and set apart from God looked forward to an anticipated salvation. And so they worked for six days and rested at the end of the week. We today look back at an accomplished salvation. And so we hear about it at the beginning of the week, contemplate it then, and then lift the six days out with gratitude to God and joy in what he has done. The very pattern of this week reflects where we are in the gospel story. But as well as looking back, it looks back to creation, looks back to redemption, redemption. the day of rest looks forward. It looks forward to eternal rest. The Bible portrays the life to come as eternal rest. Hebrews 4, for example, uses a, quite an interesting expression where it speaks of how God's people enter into his rest. God worked for six days and then rested. And then God's people enter into his rest. That the day is coming, says Hebrew, or the fulfillment of that day. Well, that doesn't mean is that, you know, we'll sit around in heaven doing nothing. That wouldn't be something to look forward to. But what it does mean is that heaven will be free of the, all that is laboring and burdensome and difficult and wearying. And more positively, it means life in heaven will always be refreshing and renewing and life-giving and energized. That's the kind of rest being spoken of, of our eternal rest. So where the Sabbath is what God intended to be, the rabbi was perfectly right. It absolutely should be an anticipation of heaven. You should smell the glory in the breeze every Sunday when we come here. This is a day of rejoicing. It's rejoicing in God and the gospel. It's rejoicing in the promise that lies before us. In other words, it's a day for worship. For worshipping our God and the company of his people. It's just a precious, precious gift. 24 hours parceled up and wrapped up in grace. So, if this is, if it, is this the bit where I finish by telling you what you can and can't do on a Sunday? Some of you might want me to, and some of you are dreading it. But I'm not going to. I'll go as far as to say that as far as you can, you should be in church every week. And that you should not do normal work on the Lord's day unless it's absolutely necessary. <clears throat> I can say these things because they're clearly taught in Scripture. Beyond that, if I start laying down the rules, there will be 1,521 of them before we know it. However, I want us to remind us of something Jesus said. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And there are some ways in which he fulfills it. He fulfills it before us. Before our eyes. In Jesus, we see the perfect law keeping. He fulfills it for us that we might, so that where we fail to obey the law, Jesus does it, Jesus does it for us and his obedience becomes ours. But then Jesus fulfills the law by fulfilling it in us and through us. He comes and he indwells us. The character of Christ is formed in us that our lives might know and fulfill the law of God. By our glad and joyful obedience. That's the pattern of Christ's work in us. And that means that part of what Jesus does today by his spirit is to work in us that we might long and love to obey the fourth commandment. Simply because we long and love to please the Lord who gave it. So I'm going to close with this. The question is not to ask what am I allowed to do or not allowed to do on Sunday. But how may I live so as to honour and glorify the God who made me and who redeemed me. And how may I live so as to glorify him. I want you to picture this. It's a picture of it's a picture of there's a picture of men, women, teenagers, boys and girls who love the Lord the God, who are willing to arrange their lives by 
the pattern that he has set for them. They take care of their demanding duties of life during the week so that they can treat Sundays differently. They go out of their way to consistently make sure that they're, at, they're worshipping with God's people, and that's a priority on the Lord's Day. They look forward to Sunday, and they prepare themselves for Sunday. If they know where the preaching is going, they, they know what the next topic or passage is going to be, they think about it in advance. They have a hunger for the Word of God. They love the fellowship of His people. They know when the Lord's uh, Supper will be celebrated, and they prepare themselves to come to the table. When the Lord's Day come, they arrive in plenty of time. They try and some, they, sometimes they're late, and that's okay, but more often than not, they make it. And they know that's good too, because it gives them a few minutes before the service to meet with their brothers and sisters and chat, and also a chance for quiet reflection. They pay attention to the words of the psalms that they sing, even if they're not that good at singing, because they know that that's not the point. They don't just listen to the prayers they pray, and they signify that by saying a hearty amen at the end. They listen attentively to the word read and hear the sermon with a discerning but teachable spirit. And after the service, wherever possible, they love to spend time with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just those that they happen to get on with, but those they think might need some encouragement and those they think they could help. In the car on the way home, they talk about what they've heard in church. The rest of the day isn't frantic like the other days of the week. They love to show hospitality when they can and have someone for lunch. Maybe someone from church or a non-Christian. They love to go for a walk as a family or play a game. They might even switch off social media. They drop by to see someone who's been ill or bereaved. They take time to talk with each other in their family about problems that have come up and issues that matter. If the preacher is having an off day, they forgive them and take from the sermon what they can. And when they put their heads on their pillows, their hearts are filled with thankfulness for the gift of the Lord's Day and for one more glimpse of glory. That's our picture. But here's the crucial thing. You should go paint one of your own. It's definitely not going to look like that. It might have similarities, but our circumstances are different. Some of the features will be the same, some of them will vary. But consider deeply and honestly before God how you can make this day holy. Using it for the benefit of others and for your blessing and God's glory. And having considered this, deeply and deeply, live with a clear conscience and the freedom of the gospel. Not freedom from holiness, but in the freedom of the gospel, recognizing your picture will change at different points in your life, as your circumstances change. And don't judge others whose pictures look a bit different to yours. Because apart from the thing of basic obedience to the word, that is between their conscience and God, concentrate on your own heart. And make sure you can say in all integrity that you have set apart for the Lord one day different day. A day to stop. A day to rest. And I pray that you find out, find out what that looks like for you. Let us pray together. Father God, we give thanks as we think about this day of rest to you, Lord. How much of a blessing it is. And how sometimes we can see it as such a burden, but actually a day to just stop. To spend time in uh, worship with you. Worshipping with our brothers and sisters. And knowing that across the world and across the country, brothers and sisters of Christ are doing the same. So Father, I pray that you would teach us how to stop. And how that may look different for each and every one of us. But that you would 
the Sabbath day. So, Father, I pray as we go away from this morning, I pray that we will be refreshed and rested as we prepare to start a new week. A week, of, a week that we might not know what's coming, but we know that if we start off on a solid footing with roots, we start with roots growing and strengthened by your love. And we're fixed firmly in place by you, Lord. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing one final song, uh, Savior of the World.